Well, leaning on his sturdy old fence, one day a devout Mennonite man was watching his new neighbor move into the farmhouse just across the road, and he watched carefully as his new neighbor unloaded all kinds of fancy appliances and electronic gadgets and plush furnishings and costly decorations off of the first of not one but two 26-foot-long packed moving trucks. After a while, the Mennonite man called over and said, Well, friend, if you ever find you're lacking anything, let me know, and I'll show you how to live without it. I'll show you how to live without it. This morning, we're going to talk about contentment. Here in the closing chapter of Paul's first letter to young Timothy and to a group of Christ followers gathering under his fledgling yet very faithful leadership there in ancient Ephesus, the Apostle Paul begins to wrap up this glorious letter with a sobering word to the rich and to the wealthy. Perhaps to those who cravenly desire to be on the lifestyles of the rich and famous Ephesus edition. That is, aside from a few verses there in the middle of 1 Timothy chapter 6, particularly verses 11 to 16, and the concluding verses, verses 20 and 21, the rest of 1 Timothy chapter 6 simply sums up the letter. It simply repeats the Apostle Paul's serious instructions concerning the harmful presence, and now we will find out even the shameful and contemptible motivation of these alleged false teachers there in the city of Ephesus, who were polluting the purity of God's household while taking advantage of God's people in the church. In this chapter, friends, Paul is going to provide us with a big tip about genuine godliness. Contrary to the world's wisdom, it is not those with all the glitz and the glamour who are the truly godly. No, godliness is not a gilded facade. It's not a sort of self-promoting religious parade Godliness is not a means to acquiring something more, more than a real intimacy and transformational relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. No, friend, greed and self-centered pursuits are, according to the Apostle Paul, actually antithetical to the true and godly and even Christ-like behavior required of us as believers. Instead, the real secret to godliness... And the true source of spiritual satisfaction, according to the Apostle Paul, that he shows us and even he will demonstrate for us is finding our ultimate satisfaction, our truest contentment, not in what we possess, but in who possesses us, in Jesus Christ, but godliness with contentment is great gain. 1 Timothy 6, verse 6. Those seven words can change your life this morning. The true secret behind real contentment is not more. More stuff, it is found in giving ourselves more and more to God's Son. True contentment is not found here on this earth, outside of knowing the one who made the earth. 
And so in this final chapter, Paul is going to warn his readers, and by extension, he's going to warn us famously that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 10. In other words, and we need to understand this, money, you know money, is itself not the problem. Money is not the problem. Money, in fact, is a neutral commodity and a necessary evil in this world. Instead, it's what happens in us. In fact, it's what we do with money that reveals what we worship. It's what we do with our money that tells us something sobering about who we are and what we worship. Because money is a tool to be used, not an object to be worshipped. It's one of the big three, isn't it? Time, talent, and treasure. It's one of the big three commodities that indicates who you are and truly who owns your heart. Now, conversely, godliness, and we're going to think about godliness a lot this morning. Godliness, on the other hand, may not fill your gas tank, but it's the fuel of faith that's going to get you all the way to glory. Godliness is what we need. It's not always what we desire or what we look for. You see, true contentment is not measured by what we lack, but rather by what we have. By faith in Jesus, the Messiah, contentment is not something that we find. It is something that we decide as disciples of Jesus Christ. Contentment is a choice. It's a choice. As one scholar said, true contentment depends not upon what we have, for a tub was large enough for Diogenes, a Greek philosopher who was known for promoting the virtue of poverty. But a a world, this uh, scholar says, was too small for Alexander, a Greek ruler, you know, who had an insatiable appetite for more and more kingdom. Henry David Thoreau said, a man is rich in proportion to the number of things that he can afford to let go, to let alone. How do you spell content? E-N-O-U-G-H. Enough. Enough. That's how we spell content. And so once again, here in this concluding chapter, we discover that true contentment is in Jesus Christ. That He is the only cure for the dreaded disease of greed that is consuming so many of us. That contentment, or to define it, a life fully satisfied in God's precious Son with godliness is, according to the Apostle Paul, truly great gain. You want to have something that is permanent, something that is meaningful? Get Christ. Get Christ. Leave the world behind. And so, friend, today's takeaway is simply this. The contentment in Jesus Christ is the cure for humanity's carnal cravings, and we all have them, particularly for man's incessant striving for more and more money, more and more stuff. That's our takeaway for today. The fact of the matter is Paul knew what he was writing. Paul himself had personally been delivered from such worldly pursuits. In Philippians chapter 3 and chapter 4, Paul gives a part of his personal testimony We have Paul's testimony of how he himself repudiated his self-righteous efforts and prideful pedigree writing these words. You know these words. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
Indeed, Paul, who really was so bright, he had such education, he was successful by every measure of the world. He says, I count it all as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You see, we have to empty out our hands in order to receive Christ by faith. I want you to notice with me in the text of 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3, that here at the start of this passage, the most, that most of what the Apostle Paul has to say here is really not new. What Paul has to say about those problem pastors and false teachers in Ephesus has already been stated in this letter previously. Notice verse 3. Paul is talking about false teachers having a different doctrine, really a graceless gospel. And he already said as much in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3. He also describes false teachers as being swollen with conceit and shameful pride. Well, isn't that sort of like the phrase that Paul uses in chapter 3 and verse 6, describing an elder as not being a recent convert lest he be puffed up with pride? You see here how Paul describes false teachers as being ignorant of God's truth and then devoid of real understanding. They, they think they know all these things, but they really don't. You can go back to chapter 1, verse 7 to see a, a similar statement. Paul is talking here about false teachers constantly fixating on contentious and divisive matters that threaten to divide and distract God's true disciples. He says the same thing in chapter 1, Verse 4, and then false teachers also are not just arrogant, but they actively promote nonsense and vain speculations. This again was mentioned already in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. But setting all of that aside, Paul does tell us something new, and perhaps you took notice of it. Paul wanted to point out the motivation not just the actions, but the motivation behind these erring elders and how they were completely and utterly self-centered. That is, they pretended to be pious, imagining that godliness was a bridge to great gain. They looked as if they were godly, but underneath they were truly greedy. Their religion was simply for show. This should send shivers up our spine to see if we're only in God's house because of what we get from God. Well, I wonder how many of you have ever heard of preachers in sneakers. Anybody ever heard of that? Probably not a whole lot in this particular group. Well, you see a picture here up on the screen. Let me just enlighten you for a moment. According to the New York Times article in 2021, a man by the name of Ben Kirby. Uh, ben was a former U.S. Marine and, a, and an MBA student. In 2019, he observantly started an Instagram account featuring megachurch pastors and other high-profile Christian personalities who he noticed were decked out in the most expensive clothing and particularly the most expensive shoes available. And so he would feature these personalities and preachers and juxtapose a picture of them with the price tag of the items that they wore. And that's what you see above me. 
Shoes, for example, almost $1,000 on, on these men. Well, what was originally meant to be a gag, I don't think uh, Ben Kirby originally meant for this to, to gain such traction. It actually ignited a firestorm of conversation and controversy over materialism and the man of God in the church. Some of you have heard about this. Guys, I can assure you that my shoes um, are not designer shoes this morning, even though, wouldn't you know it, they are new shoes today, of all Sundays, of all Sundays, unless you uh, count Target or Kohl's designer uh, stores. Kirby, a professing Christian, mind you, eventually turned his observations into a book entitled Preachers in Sneakers, Authenticity in an Age of For-Profit Faith and Wannabe Celebrities. I encourage you, perhaps, to go and buy the book and read for yourself. Well, look, let's be quite clear when we follow Paul in this passage. That in verse 3, Paul is not merely warning about a possibility. He is calling out a reality. Notice what the text says. If, now we read that as a conditional if. Oh, it might be happening. No, Paul is saying it is happening. If. The presence of false teachers here assume the truth of Paul's explanation. If anyone teaches something different. That's a a Greek term that is one word that is translated by three English words here. Teaches a different thing. If anyone teaches something else and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are, notice, depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. I actually think Paul is employing a wonderful play on words. He says there is a disease in God's house, and that disease is prideful greed. It's prideful greed. In fact, if you notice uh, the phrase, and does not agree with sound words, the the word sound words actually is where we get our word hygienic. Healthy words, firm words. And then later on in verse 4, he says these people are puffed up with conceit, and understand nothing. He has an unhealthy craving. That word unhealthy is the word in the Greek for sick or diseased. Paul is saying there is a disease in the house. They are repudiating the firm words of Christ. Paul, as an, a divinely appointed physician of the soul, diagnoses these depraved and deprived and deviant doctrinaires with a deadly spiritual condition. And not only is it greed, I'll give you another word, it's discontentment. Because perhaps your greed isn't greed related to money. It might be some other sort of greed. Relationships, possessions, whatever it might be. Paul is putting his inspired finger on the issue of greed and discontentment in the house. And notice the symptoms. The root problem is pride or sin, but notice the symptoms. Firstly, they are arrogant. Verse 4 says, he is puffed up with conceit. Again, even very doctor, uh, doctor language here, John. Very doctor language. He is puffed or swollen up with conceit. He's, he's arrogant. Notice, secondly, they are ignorant. They understand nothing. Verse 4, 
And not only that, they are irritable. They are arrogant, ignorant, and irritable. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. You see, the symptoms revealing the underlying problem of greed and pride. And notice as well that these inner attitudes devilishly result in a fistful, five in fact, of outer actions that if left untreated may cause serious harm to Christ's body. Let me rattle them off for you real quick in verse 4 and 5. These attitudes produce envy. They produce dissension. They produce slander. They produce evil suspicions. And finally, they produce constant friction. Enough is never enough for these particular people. According to verse 5, these false teachers, as well as those who caved their carnal desires and doctrines, were depraved in mind. That I, the idea behind that is they are full of error. To be depraved of mind is to be full of error. According to Romans 1.25, not only that, they are deprived of the truth They are full of error on the one hand, but they are empty of light or of truth about Jesus on the other. The result of which it appears is that they are under some grand delusion that godliness is a means of gain. And listen, based upon the context in which Paul is writing, it isn't more of Jesus that they want. It isn't more of God in their life that they are after. It is more of the stuff that they can squeeze out of the saints of God. They are just using Jesus to get more junk here on earth. That's the idea behind these words. Let me just speak to you for a moment. Evidently, all you need to have is to be a serious danger both to yourself and to other brothers and sisters in the church is a little bit of knowledge and a little bit of pride, and you've got the perfect ingredients for a whole lot of heresy. A little bit of knowledge, and a little bit of pride. And who among us does not possess those two things? Be careful. Now, we're going to come back to Paul's gospel antidote, which is found in verses 6 to 8 in just a few moments. This antidote to such a sinful and miserable condition But I want you to slip down with your eyes to verse 9. Look down with me at verses 9 and 10 as we bring this section to a close. And notice that Paul links the motivation of these false teachers to some sordid, insatiable craving for more and more money. Verse 9. But those who desire, the word here is bolomai, which it means I I want, I, I wish, I will intend to get. Those who desire to be rich, and he's speaking about the false teachers here, but really by extension, anyone who follows their pattern. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, literally the love of silver, it's only used one time in the New Testament. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered, literally stretched after from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. They started well, but they have crashed and burned, chasing after money when they should be chasing after the Messiah. Now, to me, there is a cross-reference found in the book of James that is a 
perfect and poignant illustration of the precept that Paul gives in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Look with me at James chapter 1, verses 12 to, 15, 12 to 16. These are familiar words for us this morning, but notice what James, the brother of, Christ, of Jesus Christ, the half-brother of Jesus says. He says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has prepared to those who love him. But let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. I cite this text for the next two verses in particular. Notice the progression. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. It's this yearning for more. It's the slippery slope of not enough that Paul is getting at. It's really the sin of simony. What is simony? Well, many of you will recall that scene in Acts chapter 8 regarding Simon Magnus or Simon the sorcerer who wowed people with his mystical arts and then he heard the gospel, and the, the text gives indication that he actually believes the truth, and he begins to follow as a disciple. But then Peter and John come to town to check out what is happening among the Sumerians there, and he actually wants to purchase the gift of the Holy Spirit from the apostles, and Peter rebukes him sharply. You remember that story from Acts chapter 8. The point here is that Simon Magnus most likely was never a real believer because the motives of his heart revealed how he really just wanted control. He really just wanted a power that would make him more wealthy. In fact, some scholars believe that that same Simon was one of the originators of the early Gnostic movement that became a real thorn in the church's side by the time of the second century. Listen to what the Bible says in the book of Proverbs. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Proverbs 30 verses 8 and 9. Listen, these godless false teachers in Ephesus had taken ill with a deadly fever, the fever of greed. And they sought to disguise themselves as those who were the godly ones. That's what we're looking at here. However, Paul, just like Jesus before him, assured Timothy that eventually the true colors would come shining through. You can't fake it forever. Remember what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 to 20. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits." Eventually, friend, your true colors will come shining through. These false teachers didn't love the truth. 
They didn't love the church. They were only in the ministry for the money that it provided. And so Paul singled them out and sought to sober up the saints. That's what he's doing. A craven lust for more. More stuff. More security. More seats. More fans. More funds will eventually rot away the thin veneer of any seemingly Christian virtue and expose the cancer of the dreaded disease of greed leading to the certain destiny of eternal death. You can put makeup on a corpse, but eventually that corpse is going to rot. That's what was happening with these false teachers. Brothers and sisters, listen, a love of money will plant a tiny root of pride and self-importance in your heart such that the, sin of, the seed of sin will grow into an ugly plant of, of religious performance, inauthentic spirituality, or artificial good works. And listen, the only way to root it out, Paul says, is to flee to Christ. The only way to root out this craven greed is to run to Jesus. To humble yourself before a holy God and ask Him by His kind and tender hand to weed out such things from the garden of your life. Now, some manuscripts in verse 5 have a little phrase at the very end, and I just wanted to make a passing comment about it. In most uh, newer uh, Bibles, it's not there. In the King James, it's there. I think it's sound wisdom, though it probably wasn't a part of the original manuscripts. Paul says, do you know what to do with such people? Avoid them. Paul says, withdraw from such people. Why? Because their teaching is powerful and it's seductive. So what, you, what should you do if you ever catch wind of such a false teacher? Avoid them. Withdraw from them. Don't run with them because their influence may have you running in the wrong direction before you know it. Listen to what God's word says in 1 John 2 verse 15. Beloved, do not love the world or the things in the world. John writes, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. You can be successful here. You can keep accumulating wealth and possessions and all the stuff that the world has to offer, but it's not going to last. It's going to do more harm to you than good. Paul says, flee to Jesus, run to Christ. So then what is the will of God? Well, let me go to another place that John wrote in the New Testament, the Gospel of John chapter 6, and listen to what he says is the will of God or the work of God for us. John 6 verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And they asked, well, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them saying, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Run to Jesus. Don't run with the world. Run to Jesus. In other words, friend, what is the cure for the common cold of spiritual death in Adam, often manifested in the carnal lust of greed? It's life in Christ. It's running to Christ. What is the antidote to this sinister selfishness and greed being pilfered around by those problem pastors there in Ephesus? It's Christ. 
It's loving Christ. It's learning to look like Christ. It's true godliness, which beholds Jesus. And it's true contentment, which behaves in that way. John Bunyan, in this uh, piece that he wrote entitled The Anthology of Jesus, says this. He that, is, he that is down needs no fear of falling. He that is low, no pride. He that is humble ever shall have God to be his guide. I am content with what I have, little be it or much. And Lord, contentment still I crave because thou savest such. That's the heart that we ought to have. A heart that's longing for more, but more of Jesus, not more of this world. Well, in stark contrast to this self-centered greed on the part of the false teachers in Ephesus, Paul, right here in the middle of this section, places a subtle hint, a tiny tip. Actually, I called it a big tip earlier. To help believers ward off this unholy craving for worldly wealth. What was it? We'll look at verses 6 through 8 as we come to a close this morning. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world. Perhaps Paul had Job chapter 1 verse 21 in mind when he wrote that phrase. And we cannot take anything out of the world. Perhaps he had Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 15 in mind when he wrote that. But if we have food and clothing, literally sustenance and coverings, if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Content people are quiet under God's gracious hand, being completely satisfied with the simple blessings that he has chosen for them. Food and clothing, Paul points out. When by his writings and Reformation work in Geneva, the great French reformer John Calvin rose to be a mighty threat, as you might recall, to the corrupt medieval Roman Catholic Church, they sought to tempt him with money or to lodge a false accusation against him concerning what they were sure of were lavish habits which he was suspected of having. But they did not realize what a simple life John Calvin had habitually lived. Humility and self-denial were his daily disciplines. He lived modestly in a small borrowed apartment with only the, mo the most rudimentary furnishings. And he repeatedly refused salary increases. His writings showed a heart overwhelmed with God's grace in saving such a sinner as he was. And when Calvin died, by his own will, he was buried at night in an unmarked tomb so that his monument might not become a shrine for idolatrous pilgrims to venerate. The great French reformer lived out Paul's example, if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. In fact, John Calvin says this of true godliness. He says, godliness is a very great gain to us because by means of it we obtain the benefit not only of being heirs of the world, but likewise of enjoying Christ and all his riches forever. Is that your heart? Is that your heart to have more of Jesus? Well, in, in his book, The Treasure Principle, a contemporary pastor by the name of Randy Alcorn describes the reality portrayed here as, here in 1 Timothy chapter 6, as living for the dot or living for the line. A couple years back, we did a study of the treasure principle here as a church. Living for the dot or living for the line. He says helpfully that our present life on earth is the dot. 
It begins, it ends, it's brief. But from that dot extends a line that goes on forever. That line is eternity, which Christians will spend in heaven. Therefore, we should not live for the dot, but rather live for the line. The sad truth is many are living for the dot and not for the line. The false teachers in Ephesus were living for the dot. Faithful believers like you and I, Lord willing, are to live for the line. Well, what's essential to making sure here that we spend, for the, we spend our lives for the infinite future of our line is believing Jesus Christ and his gospel, not turning away from him. It's that placing our faith not in our religious performance or our good works, but rather in Christ's perfect work of redemption on the cross is what will last forever. Believing in the death and burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is what is ultimate. Key to this experience is cultivating a heart of true contentment in our Savior who gave his all for us. Another reformer, Martin Luther, the 16th century German reformer said this, I have held many things in my hands and I have lost them all. But whatever I have placed in God's hands, that I still possess. That's the right attitude. That's the essence of faith, and that's the heartbeat of contentment. C.S. Lewis rightly says that he who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God alone. And that is so true. God himself is the highest good and the ultimate treasure of our hearts. But do you believe that? The word contentment in verse 6 is a word that speaks of a sort of self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency. Being satisfied. It's a word that is used in only two other places, and I want to share those two places with you right now. The first is 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8 says this, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency, there's the word, contentment in all things, at all times you may abound in every good work. Do you believe that, friend? The other place is found in Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 13. And this passage we know very, very well. Philippians 4, 10 says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance... I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul had learned the secret of self-sufficiency, which is the secret of being sufficient in Christ alone. See, the truth is that both greed and contentment are states of the heart. Contentment is not a fixed asset based on outward circumstances. If I just have a little bit more, I'll be satisfied then. Instead, contentment is an eternal value of the heart that is based in the goodness of Christ in the gospel. It's believing Jesus is enough. Contentment, again, is not something that you purchase. It's not something that you gain. It's not something you achieve. It is rather something that you choose by choosing Jesus. Paul's point is that we must decide to find our fullness, our satisfaction in God's Son by faith. 
only when we believe that Christ is enough are we able to weather the storms of famine on the one hand or the storms of success and good harvest on the other. Because you know they're both a threat to us. Both abundance and scarcity, both plenty and want, pose a threat to our attitude of contentment in Christ. Contentment means being satisfied with what we have by faith in the sure sovereignty of God. It doesn't mean that you can't or won't work hard to earn a good living. No, that's not what Paul is getting at at all. It's not that you can't have precious or pretty things. No, that's not Paul's point at all. It just means that you can't or shouldn't let those things have you. You can't let those things have you. We can have possessions. We are not to be possessed by the things that we give our affection or our attention to. We are to be a chosen possession for God's own praise, according to Titus 2 and verse 14. Well, how do we know if we have this godliness with contentment today? Well, that's why Paul finishes off the letter with just a few verses in chapter 6, verse 17. I'll, I'll end with this today. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17 through verse 19. How do you know? What's an indication that you are finding your contentment in Jesus? Well, listen to this text and measure it against your own life. As for the rich in this present age, and let me just say now, friend, that applies to you. It applies to me. We are rich. We are rich in this country. We are rich in this present age. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, prideful, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share, thus storing treasure up for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. That's the portrayal, the picture, the image of what it means to be fully satisfied in Jesus. Even as Jesus himself says in Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The false teachers were preying upon the church, never satisfied because they just wanted more and more out of God's people. But we are to be different kinds of people who are fully satisfied in Jesus Christ and living radically generous and obedient lives. May God give us grace to do so. Let's pray. Almighty God and Father, your word pulls no punches, and we're grateful for it. We need every letter of this book. Father, thank you for the word that we have received this morning. In your sure sovereignty, it's just the right time after having such a feast on Thursday with friends and family, having houses and, and bank accounts that, uh, again, compared to the majority of this world, are full to overflowing. Our hearts, because of sin, still often say it's not enough. Lord, I pray that this day, on this Lord's Day, we would reaffirm that Jesus is enough for us. Oh, Lord, help us to be obedient, to be attentive to your word. Help us to measure our lives by the standard or the rod of your word. Father, thank you for this admonishment this morning. Thank you, Lord, for this word of life. It really is a word of life to see and point out that the 
way and wisdom of the world leads only to death and to destruction, but the way of life and the way of the Lord leads to life eternal. Father, we thank you and give you praise and ask that you would help us to walk in obedience to the truth we've received. In Jesus' name, amen.